Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins, and I'm sitting right next to my principal partner in musical crime, Mark Pringle. <laughs> Hi, Barney. It's general election day in broken Brexit Britain, which means that by the time you hear this, we'll all know who is and isn't in charge of our country. With a Tory majority, the most likely result of the vote, we thought the best thing to do would be invite the great Chris Needs to come in and talk about the 40th anniversary of the Clash's London Calling <laughs> and about his long career as a writer, author and editor of Zigzag magazine. Welcome, Chris Needs. Hello there. <laughs> great pleasure to have yeah. you here, Chris. Um, me you've too. been on Rock's Back Pages for a good number of years. And I have, yeah. Delighted to have your writings and some of your audios. So, Thank um, you. Thanks for coming in from Buckinghamshire. Yeah. <laughs> Aylesbury Home of Friars, which yeah. you're associated with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where it all started for me, really. I'd been a Stones nut yeah. since seeing them on Thank You Lucky Stars yeah. in 1963 at the age of nine. But I desperately wanted to go and see bands live. And apart from my very hip school teacher organising... These weren't school trips, they were coach outings from outside the school. Right. But we got to see Donovan at the Albert Hall oh. with Tyrannosaurus Rex in January 68, and that was my first gig when I was 13. And then the Enemy Poll Winners concert in May 68 when the Stones were the surprise guests. Wow. And they right. did jump in Jack Flash. Yeah. And the third one was Jimi Hendrix. In February 69. Yes. I'm so envious. It's just like I can barely contain <laughs> Still myself. Still the best guitarist I've ever seen Absolutely. on a stage anywhere. You know, yeah. um, that is the Albert Hall show that is now going to be kind of revisited, is it not? I had the album. Right. Which no, but it's a different one. Yeah. Different one. Oh, this we is went on February thing. the 18th. Uh-huh. Oh. That was the first one that they filmed, but uh, apparently the lighting wasn't right and Jimmy wasn't quite on form. But but they've sort of patched it together, haven't they? And there is going to be a film, I think. Yeah, well, this one, a nice little twist, is that me and Robin, who organised that trip 50 years ago, he went to the second night on February the 24th. And the film, The Last Experience, is based around that. Right. And it's been in litigation for... <laughs> been in litigation... <laughs> Just a shot away. 50 years. <laughs> and I went with him. We went to the Albert Hall. Fantastic. scene of the thing, you know, and watched the film, and it's pretty good. But So that was my third gig. And then, you know, being 14... I wasn't really allowed to go to sort of UFO or yeah, sure. Middle Earth or whatever was going on. Yes. So, um, well, you wouldn't have got home to Aylesbury. No, just, you know, my, my poor parents, you know. Um, <laughs> but Friars started on the doorstep, Yeah, thanks to Robin, going to a club called Mothers in the Midlands yes. and also going to see Otis Redding at the Ram Jam Club in Brixton. OK. Yeah. And he wanted to merge the two. Right. Vibe-wise. And with a local band manager, David Stops, the t- two of them, plus a little committee of some of the kids at my school, the hipper ones in the year above. Friars started in June 1969, and I went to the opening night, and then it was all in the local paper that it was, you know, a drug den and stuff, and uh, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go then for about three or four months. Right. So I missed the pretty things, and King Crimson playing one of their early yep. landmarks. But I did see Mike Cooper and Mandrake Paddle Steamer on that opening <laughs> night. <laughs> I, I saw Mike Cooper about two months ago and playing a free improv thing in, okay, in still, his green. Still, still going, going. He's amazing. He's in Spain and It was great. I really, I didn't care much for Mandrake Paddle Steamer, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> Mike Cooper was brilliant, and I, I managed to go back again in November. Yeah. And I saw Keith Ralph's Renaissance. Yes. They were good. Graham Bond, he was incredible. But the big one that stood out was Mott the Hoople. Yeah. Because, you know, they'd only been gigging for a few months. And this was one of the first gigs where they, the crowd went mad and they fed off that mm-hmm. madness. And Hunter kicked off the piano stool and, and over and started standing on his amp. And, yeah. And it all, all went off. And yeah, yeah. I was never the same again. And then two weeks later, Robin again booked them at my school Christmas dance. <laughs> the perfect This teacher trip. sounds great. Yeah. Well, we had Andy Dunkley playing records, the optic right. nerve light show. This is in the school hall where I went every morning That's to assembly. Fantastic. And then Mott came on, did two sets, and it was a sixth form dance only. Yeah. So I wasn't I was only fifth form. So I wasn't allowed to go, but disgruntled went to the pub over the road. First time I'd ever been in a pub on my own. And there were Mott in the corner. So 
I sort of went up timidly approached them, uh, but Overend being the lovely guy he was, just, oh, can't I, do you want a drink? And uh, So I had my first pint of beer <laughs> and um, got talking to them and, you know, they smuggled me into the gig as a roadie under Overend's big great coat and stuck me under the PA stack and I got to see Mott again. Fantastic. And not only that, you know, now we were kind of friends. Yeah. And, what year was that again? 69. That's 69. So, well, so it behooves us to mention that your new book oh. is all about 1969. In fact, it's part one of yeah. your <laughs> your magnum opus about that year. It's called Just a Shot Away, Stone's reference, oh, oh, obviously. At what point yeah. did you... You formed the Motley Hoople fan club, didn't you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, it basically it all started in 69. Yeah. yeah. I became... They came back to Friars several times over the next the coming months yeah. in that time they were getting bigger and bigger but they weren't you know then the, that thing set in where they were playing to packed lunatic houses yeah. all over the country but not selling any records yeah, yeah. and then there was the big split and Bowie to the rescue yes, yes. which coincided with Friars putting on the first ever appearance of Ziggy Stardust in Fantastic. January 1972 another life changing moment because yeah, yeah. you know, I was in the dressing room you know and hanging about with Bowie you know and, uh, I told you I'd be different because he played there in September '71 and he had long hair. Yes, right. Yeah. But he came back and well, obviously, <laughs> and obviously then rescued Mott the Hoople. So suddenly, both my two favourite planets collided, and I was in the thick of it. And they asked Mott asked me to run their fan club, and that went through Tony De Priest, and he agreed, and so I did. For I didn't get paid. <laughs> until the next manager. <laughs> but it was just incredible watching the rise of Bowie and then the you know the re-emergence of Mott as kind of glam rock superstars, even though that went pear-shaped very quickly, as things did with Mott. I mean, I was lucky enough to see Mott Hoople at the Albert Hall in early 72. Was oh, 71, 71. where they got banned. Absolutely. I, the the I'd, riot. <laughs> I'd never seen an audience like that before. He started the riot. <laughs> Far from it. I was sitting there watching it in utter amazement. Because the Albert Hall audience, I used to go to the Albert Hall a lot because my school was just around the corner. We used right. to bunk in at gate 13, run up to the top and go down the front. And I saw a lot of really great shows there. Leon Russell, which is fantastic. Mott Hoople, we'd heard about provincial audiences, like in Sunderland, for free and bands like that, you know. Yeah. But I'd never seen anything like that audience. And they were absolutely bonkers. I mean, it was absolutely riotous. It was brilliant. And I'm really glad I saw it because, quite honestly, Mott's albums from that time, I found always a bit disappointing. I, the, the Guy yeah. Stevens, who went on to produce London Calling, produced a lot of them. They didn't sound great, but seeing them live, they were astonishing. They were absolutely great. Oh, I mean, there was this elemental power. Yeah. And even from that very first gig... The ones I liked most were the ballads, because I mean, you really got me. It was brilliant if you wanted to rave around and all that stuff. But the crashing coders at the end, you know, with, just went on forever. Yeah. You know, with Hunter screaming over the top. No, they didn't. It was weird. The, the relationship with Guy, yeah. who put them together. That's right. Yeah, which was it was a bit like with London Calling. You mm. know, Guy was great at starting things, but mm. not so good at bringing them <laughs> home. And they tried it with Brain Capers, which yeah. is possibly the nearest they got yes, to that's... their live power, but they were a desperate band then. And, you know, Guy insisted on getting them very drunk before the session. I mean, Buffin ended up passed out in his bass drum for half <laughs> You know, nobody noticed. <laughs> and, um, and then they never did quite get it right because Bowie, he was there at rehearsals, with them. Yeah. I mean, the, the popular myth is that Mick Ronson did all the work, but no, I asked Hunter about this last year. No, no, he was there all the time, and mm. I thought he was, because I had a main man itinerary, which I still have somewhere, and it told you what Bowie, Iggy and Mott were doing, and Bowie was spent a lot of time on that album, and then Lou Reed was sort of there, <laughs> you know, but no, Mott didn't quite... I mean, there was going to be a live album, and it was recorded, and they didn't lose the tapes, they just... I don't know, they just, it just didn't come out yeah. beyond one track on Wildlife. But Bowie kind of, some of their live power mm -hmm. was lost on the All The Young Dudes album. And then, of course, they stepped up into Mark Mott 
phase two, yes. you know, mm. with the stepping stone of the Mott album. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, of course, All the Young Do's, one of the great kind of yeah. glam rock it's, anthems, it, it, wasn't it? We posted just a couple of weeks ago, Ray Fox Cummings' review of Mott Hoople playing... Was it? Crimmel, I with Bowie. About Bowie's plays Bowie, backing, Bowie does some backing vocals comes on and sings yes, backing vocals, and, and he's very amusing about the how Moss have changed their appearance. Suddenly they kind of got a bit cat. He put they're, he said they're firmly in the camp camp. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Fox coming writes all about the sort of new togs and yes. sort of w- wings over in Watts. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they did invent the yeah. platform boot. I mean, the very first stack heels I saw were on Mott. Really? Right. They had really? a guy in Kensington Market yeah. who, when Mott had their boots made, you know, those patchwork kind of things yes. yeah. people used to wear then, and Mott used to say, can you put another layer of leather on, on, under the heel? And every time they went back, they made it higher and higher. How interesting. Um, how so they invented how... the platform boot. They really did. Chris, how did we get from you running the Mott fan club to ZigZag, taking over editorship of ZigZag magazine, which was enormously important to both Mark and myself from its kind of, like, well, the early 70s in my case days, but it launched in late 60s. 69. Um, And you would have first met Peter (laughs) in the book. Yes, in the book. Well, honestly, this book is terrific. It's such a a wonderfully sort of refreshing fan's eye appreciation of what happened in that year. There's so much in it. It's not just, it's not just let it bleed. Uh, It's some raw. Yeah, there's just a ton of great stuff in there. I think what's really riveting is how you started writing for zigzag and then they basically handed you the magazine the the, the peak peak frame yeah well Uh, i mean it what i was saying about everything being connected yes so bowie had led to the mott fan club yeah yeah. three years after i'd first met them and pete frame discovered mott in terms of initial press coverage oh right an interview with guy stevens in zigzag Pete said something like, what have you been up to recently, Guy? Well, I've got this new band called Motta Hoople. They just made an album called Talking Bear Mountain Picnic Disaster Dylan Blues. And he was going on about, that's what it was going to be called. <laughs> that was the, the short version. It was called Hoople. But, um, <laughs> and I think the test pressings went out and Pete went, was frothing over this record. Mm-hmm. And Andy Dunkley was another one who had an early copy. He mm-hmm. was our DJ at Friars, so he played us all the, you know, hot stuff before it was out. Sure, he, sure. he did that with King Crimson. Yeah, yeah. So the buzz for Mott was already in existence in Zigzag. We were primed by mm-hmm. Pete when Mott appeared at Friars. Right. And Pete was a regular at Friars. I used to see him in the pub at lunch. Because I went on to, while I was running Mott's fan club, I was working for the local newspaper the Bucks advertiser between 73 and Pete in 1977 saying, look, there's a new movement. This is like the rock and roll I came up with in the 50s. I'm too old to cover this stuff. He was only in his 30s. But I knew, you know, you've got your... Because by that time I'd seen The Clash and The Pistols and I was going around the squat where Sid Vicious lived and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And he said, you take over the mag. And I was you know, could have knocked me down with a feather because, I mean, I literally had about three months to go on the local paper before I took my final exam and would be qualified as a, whatever a cub reporter gets yes. qualified <laughs> as. And I, I left immediately. You and know, amazing. And took over ZigZag and hand, basically Cow did what Pete did. He gave me his electric typewriter right. that he typed all those issues. You know, that distinctive type. Absolutely. It was a little golf ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had that. My wife at the time typed it up. Mm-hmm. And a big tub of cow gum <laughs> and a felt-tip pen. Yeah. And some, you know, those intricate little sort of draftsman's. I did the whole thing by hand every month. Well, there's some rotating pens and all that stuff. Yes, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, somehow it came out and then... At that point, our publisher was a guy called Graham Andrews in Reading, mm-hmm. who was great. He started the record label that put my punk band out on, and all was going right. And then Graham decided he wanted to retire and open a news agent, so he sold it to a bunch of hippies on Talbot Road in Notting Hill mm-hmm. who'd been distribute 
seeing Oz and IT and all those. Yeah. I mean, you would have loved their basement. It was <laughs> <laughs> rare underground mags, yeah. and I wish I'd plundered it a bit more. But, <clears throat> yes, uh, we wish you had. <laughs> uh, and they lasted about, they were so disorganised, sort of drug-crazed hippies, basically. They were lovely, but they ended up having to sell the magazine, and that's when it got taken yeah. over by the Hooray Henrys and yeah. run into the ground and caused me to, you know, I started writing for Cream yeah. instead. Yeah, um, I'm holding a few copies of Zigzag from that era in my hands, and it is it's extraordinary to look well, at that's the That's not issue. one of mine, that's a <laughs> I know, I, I, no, I, I appreciate that, but it's to make a point, which is this is the March 77 issue, and even though it's got a, that, that fantastic Mick Rock, shot of Iggy Pop on the cover. When you open it, first thing you see is an ad for an album by Guy Clark and Steve. Two albums, oh, yeah, Guy yeah. Clark and Steve Young albums. Then you turn the page and it's about Jackson Brown. So, um, But then a year later, it's <laughs> Debbie Harry on the cover, Zebra Striped, and you are straight into, I mean, it's Blondie, The Fall, Ramones, Richard Hell, Don Letts, and it, it changed very quickly, didn't it? And well, yet, I put the slits was, on my first ever cover. You put the slits on I, your yeah, first ever uh, cover, which was, what, August 77? Yeah, 77. Okay, yeah. brilliant. I mean, uh, that was a statement. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm astonished that anyone that, that would just hand their magazine over to someone else, but for the reasons you've given. And that's a really generous thing to have done. Oh, it was amazing. It? I mean, Pete, I, I think Pete, apart from being possibly the biggest influence on my own writing yes. in the early you know, his irreverence, his humour, yeah. but his absolute forensic research, mm. which obviously was already on the go with the family trees. Yes. That aside, Pete was just, he always thought what was best, you know, for the magazine. Yeah. And I think he got, he was getting quite bored of just doing Jackson Brown and, yeah. you know, and there was total outrage from the old guard readership, of I course. I bet there was. <laughs> <laughs> but on yeah. the other hand... We you got... can't expect Guy Clark fans to embrace no, Marky but, Smith but, but, straight I mean, away. Yeah, but it's interesting yeah. John Peel had exactly the same experience. Mm. He had oh, been, I know. You yeah. know, uh, for exactly the same reasons. You know, you can't be playing this punk rock stuff. Well, Pete know. took me up to Peel's show and I sat on the floor... This is in late 76. Mm -hmm. Me and Pete were going to a lot of things because he, he worked at Aylesbury Brewery Company as a draftsman. That was his day job right yeah. now because he wasn't making any money off zigzag. <laughs> and I'd meet him every lunchtime. You know, So we were going off. We went to the Song Remains the Same premiere. Yeah. Um, we'd go and visit Nick Lowe when he was launching Stiff. You know, all, all these little outings. Yeah, yeah. So it, I mean, it's not like Pete... And we had long conversations. So I think Pete knew what he was doing. And he carried on doing stuff for yes. Zigzag. I mean, I think there's a family tree in that one. You know, his New York band's yeah. one. If they hadn't, if he had just carried on with Jackson Brown, I don't suppose Zigzag would really have lasted into the era of, of post-punk in the way that it did. And, yeah. and beyond, you know. So actually, it was a really smart decision, you know. Pete was never going to just be about kind of West Coast singer-songwriters and country rock bands. But he also knew... And, again, as I say in the book, listening to Peel gave me this attitude that you shouldn't listen to just one kind of music. Yeah. You know, so I, although I thought The Clash were the most amazing band I'd seen since Mop the Hoople, yeah. I could still appreciate John Fahey. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. And since you're talking about um, The Clash, why, why don't we segue into your... Early pieces on the Clash. I mean, you were you were one of the first writers to cover the Clash and to report on the Clash. And you also, I love this little detail that you you saw their first out of town gig, which yes. was at. Let me get this correct. It was at the. It was in Leighton Buzzard. Yes, at the Tiddenfoot Leisure Centre. <laughs> yeah. and this must have been in the summer of seventy six. It was earlier, October. October seventy six. I mean, they, they'd recently played the Hundred Club Festival the yeah. previous month, right? But they hadn't really ventured out of town. They, I mean, their first ever gig was supporting the Pistols in Sheffield or something like that. But I mean, most of their gigs had been, you know, around. London, and this was supporting a band called The Rockets, <laughs> who were a kind of high-energy pub rock band. Okay. I don't know if you... Do you remember I them? I have no memory of them at all. None of their members really went on to do much, I don't think. But The Clash came on before them, which was incredible. 
But, I mean, it was a provincial leisure centre. It's everything it sounds like, (laughs) with these sort of sofas and things. And the crowd was, apart from me and me, me mates... The rest seven of the crowd. people there, weren't there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There weren't many people there. No. And there, there were quite a few sort of hippies and rockers and, yeah. you know, prog fans. Yeah. And What's that when you see pictures of, like, those early punk gigs? There's no one with short hair. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, my trousers really got me into trouble, you know, at that point. I mean, to the point where I... Because I met The Clash that night, and this the link thing again, I recognised Mick from the mop dressing rooms. <laughs> yeah. course. I was, of course. I've seen yeah. you before. Yeah. I've seen you before. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. like that. So that, another bond. Yeah, yeah. And that's why me and Mick, you know, he became the one I, the member I was most closest to. Yeah. You know, to the point where he produced a single by my band. Yes. And formed me a band. And, you know, I talked to Mick a lot and in those early first two years. You know, so I wouldn't get beaten up by Sid. He gave me a pair of his old drain pipes. You've got to put these on. <laughs> you know, up at Wilmcote House, you know, where he did it, wrote all the songs with Joe for the mm. first album. So it was... That was the start of the journey, that gig in Leighton Buzzard. I mean, they... I just... I wrote about it in New York Rocker. Yes. Because I was their correspondent before I was editing ZigZag. Um, oh, really? That, that predated your time? That was through Pete, though, because he was mates with Alan Betrock, who started New right. York Rocker. Yeah. across the ocean. And they got me in as a kind of, you know, UK punk correspondent. And I think <laughs> that kind of laid the groundwork for doing ZigZag and... Well, the first of the three Clash-related pieces of yours that we're going to feature on the home page is is this kind of report for New York Rocker, December 76, and it starts off with a quote (laughs) from Mick Jones, we're one up the arse for the rich established groups. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and you write that they're currently the most devastating of the new wave British bands bent on reforming rock to topple the bored and ancient heroes and replace them with high-energy rock and roll played by people with their fingers on the pulse of what's really going on. And then you say that categorisation happy music papers over here have labelled it punk rock. How can you dredge a word from the past to describe a movement aimed at the future? Well, of course, it, we do, of course, still know it as punk well, rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's a great, it is a great report on, on, on this band that obviously be, you know, became pretty huge in America over the coming years. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they had the ability to change lives. Uh, there's so many people still write to me on Facebook about, oh, I bought ZigZag and I went to see The Clash and I've never been the same since, you know. Yeah, yeah. That was the effect of The Clash. The Pistols got you, they certainly caused a reaction, but I saw them that same month at fast venue in Dunstable and it was boomy. And once you got over the, in, the initial sort of shock of seeing Leiden doing Anarchy in the UK, it kind of got a bit boring after 20 minutes because the sound wasn't very good yeah and john was you know he was not really no i don't know you know he didn't like the crowd but the clash was like as i said in the thing it was like bolt of electricity into the air you know i mean i went home i i dredged a shirt out of the cupboard got some emulsion and (laughs) you know turned up next time with a daubed you know you talk in the piece about how important that is the, yeah. the look of the clash, Paul Simonon being being an artist, and that kind of accidental thing where he spilled paint every yeah. time. I mean, obviously the Pistols had their own their own image and, and iconography, but there was something about the clash and the way they yeah, presented I, themselves. I used to live. I lived in a house with Martin Stone from Cleveland Real Peppers and Whitechapel and Alex Michon who did the Clash of Shirts, had a workshop at the back. Oh, right. And she was busy. This is 7980. She's yeah. making all these really striking shirts. She made one for me. Red front, black slash pocket, black sleeves. I lost it. Oh, I, I know. It's probably in a museum <laughs> At that point, she was really the band's sort of stylist and producing fabulous clothes for them. She really... did it for ages. I mean, yeah. it started in 77, because when Topher joined... The first thing that happened to him was they cut all his hair off, dyed yeah. it, and gave him a, an Alex outfit. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know. I mean, in some ways, they were like a sort of punk boy band. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, had, they had their little outfits. And I always think that that's, 
That's interesting. I mean, in the wake of this, I read, I don't know if you saw Mark P talking about the birth of sniffing glue in The Guardian earlier this week. And, yes, and, and he said, for me, punk died when the clash signed to CBS. And, and <laughs> I mean, I, do you think that's wildly unfair or do you think that there's some truth in that? No, I, I, th- I think because when they signed to CBS, they didn't suddenly get loads of money. Bernie Rhodes did. They had to make like 10 albums yeah. with that money mm. and pay for the, everything themselves. Mm. I mean, the whole point about London Calling, which makes it all the more remarkable, was they were absolutely skint mm. when they started doing that album. Right. And, I mean, I think Mick got a new stereo with his advance from CBS. That's, that's hardly going to kill punk, you know. <laughs> it meant their record could get everywhere and they still didn't go on top of the pops. I mean, they, they were just so... They had all these ideas, and, and we laugh about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, Topper was talking about it the other day. You know, they wanted to stay in the best hotels with their fans sleeping on the floor. They wouldn't go on top of the pops. They wanted to make double albums for the price of a single... Triple albums for the price of a single album. Yeah. You know, everything sort of, you know, yeah. shouldn't have worked. Yeah. And, it, and it was bound to implode, and it did. But... yeah. For just that brief time, I've never seen a band with that power, and it's what we were talking about with Mott, except this was where Mott sprawled and went up and down. Mm-hmm. The Clash was like, at first, it was just like this devastating barrage of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd seen the Ramones too, and it was even different to them. I mean, the Ramones influenced the Clash to an extent in, in, the, in the beginning because everything changed after that first Ramones album. But pretty soon, Mick's grounding in the music that had happened before punk was yeah. starting to come through, and Joe's certainly did. I yes. Mean, when I interviewed Captain Beefheart in 1977, Joe was like, what was he like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And, yeah. and this is at the height of Joe's year zero, you're not supposed to listen well, to Well, no, of course. I saw, I, I saw him with the 101ers at the Stonehenge Free Festival in 1975, and I, I hated the whole festival, even though I looked the part, hair down to there and all that. You know, I was, I was kind of sneering. And the one on us a terrible band. I mean, they couldn't really play. I never saw them. But, 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 I recognised him because he used to busk just around the, down here. He used to busk in the subways around Hammersmith Station. Oh, right, yeah. And I was at an FE college just down the road, and so I'd actually see him busking. So there was this guy I'd already seen before busking in Hammersmith too. And... You know, with short hair, with a Telecaster, playing really basic rock and roll. Mm. And I, I loved them. You know, it's such a relief after all these awful, you know, kind of awful psychedelic bands, you know, just sort of dribbling on for hours and then, just to have someone play, like, little short two-and-a-half-minute songs. Yeah. We were listening to the first Clash album yesterday, yeah. and you mentioned the Ramones, and, and I, it sort of came to me hearing hearing that first album again it was a bit like hearing the Ramones under the west way yeah. <laughs> in 76 you yeah. can hear the but that changed very I mean I still think that is one of the great punk albums as great in its way as the first Ramones album oh, yeah. but, but it changed very quickly didn't it because because they, they they made what I think many people would accept was a real mistake in bringing in Sandy Palmer and Murray Krugman to, if to they produce the second album that if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't yeah. have made London Calling. Well, that was kind of what I was leading on to. Yeah. And so let's talk a bit about London Calling because because it's not is it a punk album really? I mean, I'm not listening back to that again. To me, it's almost like punk rocks XR Main Street or something. It's such a grab bag with so many different styles. Yeah. Whereas the first album is just maximum in, in intensity yeah. with, of course, the reggae element. other pieces of yours one is a kind of on the road piece from <laughs> from zigzag not long after london calling came out and it's just all the usual chaos of sleeplessness oh, and hotel the... rooms and and you almost getting thrown off by peter jenner thrown off the oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but then the last the piece is, is where you're talking about you know you're looking back at london calling in fact 10 years ago you're looking back on the 30th anniversary uh-huh. so so tell us tell us what London Calling means now in terms of kind of pop history. It's such a it's such a sort of sacred album, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I put it down to everything coming together, even though it was created out of 
extreme adversity with no money because they, they got rid of Bernie, who'd frozen all their funds. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, halfway through the recording, they they zipped over to Finland to play a festival for seven grand that would keep them in the right. studio for a few more days. But they, they realised after giving them enough rope, which was mixed schooling in production. Mm -hmm. He started it on the first album with those, you know, harmonica and backing vocals. But give him enough rope. He watched Sandy Pillman and he learned how to do faders. Da, 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 da. And he really got into overdubs. And Mick's whole thing is overdub. I saw this when he produced my Vice Creams single. Mm -hmm. Right. He's got a track in his head. And when they were playing, this was in Olympic, which was mad to be mm -hmm. recording there. <laughs> He's playing... Him, Topper, Tony James and our yeah. guitarist Colin, when they're working up the song, and I had a cassette which I took home the first day, and I thought, this is great. But the next day when we went back, Mix put more guitars on it, then I put my vocals on, and it was a different track. But all those guitars meshed, right? you know, and they're all in there and mm -hmm. they create something else. And that's the what he did with London Calling. He was working with Bill Price, who yeah. worked on Mot the Hoople. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And... Obviously, Guy kick-started the whole thing. Mm. I mean, I, I guess they got the polar opposite to Sandy Perlman. Yeah. Because Perlman, I mean, he... Poor guy, you know, our friend Robin decked him on the first night that he Did came he? to he? Lancaster <laughs> University. <laughs> he came and knocked on the... This Robin. is Robin Banks, yeah, he, as, he, as uh, <laughs> a critical to the class story as you are. Yeah, we, he, um, he was guarding the dressing room in this... Guy, you know, in a probably a satin tour jacket, knocked on the door. Hi, and he just went bonk, <laughs> <laughs> and they stepped over his prone, bleeding form as they went on stage. But Perlman took this as a sort of initiation test. Are you saying he hit him just because he had a satin jacket, or because he knew who he was and that he? No, produced... I don't. I, I think he did know who he was actually. Right. <laughs> I think Robin's quote at the time: "I know exactly who he was," and. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you the rest because it's a family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, he, I think it was crucial they did that album mm. and then they did the Cost of Living EP, which yes. was a kind of pivotal... Because, you know, a couple of the tracks on there are really subtle and not punk. Mm. And they did a cover of I Fought the Law showing that they were acknowledging yeah. Roots, which Mick and Joe had seen on a jukebox in San Francisco. Mm. And that... When they were over in the States... Do, uh, mixing, give them enough rope. That's when Mick and Joe started really thinking there's some stuff going on here that we used to like and we could work this, you know, this is going to come out. And it did. And then when the class toured America, starting in 79, that fed into, you know, it all, it was just a widening. Uh, and yeah. the crucial element yeah. was Topper. Because Topper's background mm -hmm. was everything from soul bands to marching bands mm -hmm. to jazz. Yeah. And it meant they could play this stuff because yeah. they couldn't very well do Jimmy Jazz with Terry Chimes. No. no. But they Tory could crimes. with Topper. I mean, <laughs> with Topper, they could do anything. And that gave them the yeah. confidence. It's like having a big comfy chair. You can, well, that's probably the wrong. But they. But it yeah, was, but, uh, it was a spirit uh, yeah, that Guy yeah. ignited with his chair throwing and yeah. Yeah. you know pouring wine down the grand piano and all this stuff. But that got them going, and yeah. then once that creative role yeah. was, and I'd go to the studio and it'd be, oh, we just, we just got a new song. You know, they were pouring yeah. it. But yes, there'd been that crucial time at Vanilla Studios too, which was completely off the beaten track on purpose, so that the usual hangers-on wouldn't be coming round. Mm. And the game of football every night yes. or afternoon. Where was where was the football match played? On this concrete kind of. Okay. It wasn't like a football pitch. It was some children's play area, you know. So, so essentially, kind of guy sort of initiated events, but the album's actually produced by Mick and Bill Price. Yeah, they did all the. I mean, they were always. I mean, in the opening, in the first few weeks, mm -hmm. guy was compass mentis enough to, you know. He was still flinging stepladders yeah, and yeah. Uh, bellowing and kissing the Arsenal ground on his way to Wessex Studio every day, <laughs> you know, lying down in front of Morris Oberstein's roller when he came to check out the, you know, guy antics. But yeah. towards the end, I mean, the, my 
one of my abiding memories is there was me, Joe and Johnny and Robin in a cab going to the studio and we saw this manic figure running at the side of the road and we're like, isn't that Guy? And yeah. we, we sort of stopped the car. Guy, what are you doing? Go make the offer before they're shut. <laughs> and sure enough, he turned up back at the studio, you know, in a, 20 minutes later with two big bottles of cider, which he then drank and passed out. And yeah. Bill and Mick were the ones, you know, they were doing Spanish bombs, I think, mm. and, you know, doing that intricate webs of guitars and yeah. and the train in vain. I mean, that was that happened when Mick phoned up and said, we're done, do, do you want to come and hear the finished thing? So I got the train in from Leighton Buzzard, where I was living by then. Leighton Buzzard again. I know. <laughs> and um, instead of hearing the finished album, Mick was in the vocal booth singing Train in Vain. Uh-huh. And I thought, what's going on? Oh, new song. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went back. This time, it really is finished. Do you want to come and hear it? But it wasn't. They were sequencing when I arrived. Yeah. And, and that's when, you know, at five in the morning, the gaffer tape incident happened. You know about that? No, I don't. Oh, why, um, why don't I it's, know? It's about in this? that Clash <laughs> scrapbook. But, I mean, there was me, Topper, Paul, and Robin, and Johnny, you know, sitting around in the games room at mm. Wessex, which is upstairs. And Space Invaders had just come in so that, you know that got hammered and but all sorts of other silly clash games like mm-hmm. making animal noises and there was a lot of that back then some of them are on london calling you know those borrow yes mm-hmm. you know yes that came from the general right childish behavior <laughs> in our vicinity but five in the morning mick joe and bill had finished sequencing the tracks and it was time to hear the album and they suddenly realised that I'd been hanging around as a friend, not a journalist. I never, ever took notes. Right. Never took photos, much to my yes. regret now. Sure. Mm. And suddenly I think the light bulb went on in Joe's head. He's a writer, you know, it's like, easy. You know, and they grabbed hold of me and wrapped me in gaffer tape from head to foot. <laughs> and put top his crash helmet on my head and there was a cue ball... Gafford, sort of, <laughs> the, rear, the rear end. Um, I don't know, but, you know, and I got ta- carried downstairs to Studio One where the playback, and that's how I heard London Calling for the first time. Would that we could all hear a classic album <laughs> under those circumstances. That's so funny. But it was five in the morning, yeah. and, I mean, eventually I was able to wiggle my hands free. <laughs> and, I mean, it was just pure triumph, that, that six in the morning by yeah. the time we'd finished. You know, and just track after track. After, I mean, I'd heard various things. Like the, Works you know, in progress. I'd seen yeah, the Montgomery yeah, Cliff sure. idea yep. happen. And, you know, we, we the title track, it seemed like it was done a century ago, you know, but mm. just hearing the whole thing. Yes. And then Training Bane on the end. Isn't that that? Oh, yeah, it's too late to list it on the sleeve, yeah. you know. And that was it. And then I ran home, not literally, but got the train back to Leighton Buzzard, hand-wrote, a review about three hours after yeah. I'd yeah. heard the album and it, it appeared in that Christmas zigzag. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Well, we're celebrating, so it is 30, four, sorry, 40, these decades yeah. shoot by, don't <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 40 years since the release of The Clash's original double album, London Calling. Just great to talk to you about The Clash, Chris. The other three pieces this week, rather spin-off from The Clash, a Stephen Dalton piece on politics in part from 1993, actually takes its title from the London Calling version of Danny Ray's Revolution Rock, and it's a kind of chronology of everything from sort of Woody Guthrie to Riot Girl in terms of revolutionary pop music. But we thought we would just quickly stick in here a clip of the sainted Billy Bragg speaking to journalist Larry Jaffe in May 1990. Mark, you mentioned Tory crimes. The yeah. <laughs> so we thought this would be rather timely. You banned your rights by nine Your bonds I will proclaim Your doctrines I must blame You will it's strange, I mean, a lot of the things that Thatcherism brought on, everyone was complaining about during punk. And, you know, the Super Tramp were making a record called Crisis, what crisis? Because they couldn't see where it was happening. But it was happening in an underground level. 
it's just Thatcher pulled it over ground. Right. Thatcher just threw off any pretense of there being a, you know, a consensus anymore. It was just, we're out to get you, you and your kind. A, a, a Conservative MP said that to me once on TV the night after the 87 election. You and your kind are finished. We're in control now, and you better get used to it. You privatise away, and then you make us pay. I will take it back someday, mark my words, mark my words. We'll take it back someday, mark my words. Well, that's quite chilling <laughs> to hear all these years yeah. later. You know, the Tory politician in question was Theresa Gorman. Really? Yeah. And, mm. I mean, it, it, how far have we come from that? Essentially, we, we have a, a Conservative Party who are saying the same thing. We're in control now. And this is potentially, you know, a momentous day for our country. And while we try not to be too partisan on the RBP podcast... Do they say, vote Labour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. except, or, except, or Lib Dem. Except, Dem. except by yeah. the time you hear this, yes, it'll be it's too late. Be, it'll it's all like, be we'll, academic. We'll be done and dusted. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, these these are, these are scary times, and you know, does music have a role to play? I do think that people like Billy Bragg have have played an important part in pop music over over the last thirty forty years. More power to him. There's also a piece that I've chucked in there by Frank Owen from the same year, nineteen ninety, about the greening of planet pop, which is which is again. I mean, it, you think how long ago that is. He's writing about eco rock. He's writing about musicians hmm. protesting the deforestation of the Amazon and so forth. All this stuff. I mean, and we're you know we're all this time later. And and you know and it's uh, worse and it, and it's kind of worse except that I think you know it is revving up with XR and everything else but it just was extraordinary to to read this piece for Spin so there we are the Clash agit pop politics punk rage that's what we're all about this week and talking of links we're going to hand over to you now Mark yeah. and here about, well, your old friend John Tobler's audio <laughs> interview with Kirsty McCall. Indeed, right. from, from 1989. She just released her album Kite, which was actually, in some ways, her sort of breakthrough record. It's a lovely interview, because she's a really nice woman. John is a terrific interviewer, because <laughs> he sort of engaged them in conversation, and, and, and the, the, it's not a series of questions. It, 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 it really genuinely works. He First of all, he asks her about her family background, and says, you know, we all know that you and Nicole was your your dad, but you know, who, which one was your mum? And she says, I'm glad you asked because everyone assumes it's Peggy Seeger and it wasn't, you know. And that sort of, I think, can, gets him off on a good footing with her because you know he has asked her something that no one seems to ask, and mm. this myth has arisen. She talks about working with the Pogues. We'll play a clip at the end about her being on the road with the Pogues, basically singing the one song, and that's relevant because. She hated singing live. She just, she got suffered from really bad stage fright. She talks about her kind of fairly cool relationship with Tracy Ullman, but resulted in some big hit records. Her terrible time on Polydor Records, where she recorded an album. In fact, we'll listen to a clip now. It's about she recorded this album for Polydor, which they didn't release, and it resulted in her having sort of really quite severe writer's block, which happened again later in her life as well. Have you always written? No, I've had long breaks where I couldn't. Like, after that album that never came out, I just... It felt like I'd sort of had a baby and left it in a phone box and it was abandoned, you know? It was just like, it'll never... It'll never... It's like being constipated or something. If you've got all this stuff and it's, you know, it's just clogging you up and until it gets released or until it's finished or it's got some channel to go to, it doesn't feel like you can stop thinking about it and you can't think about new things while you think about old things and you have to you know you have to clear things out of your brain as you go along otherwise you just get all clogged up and mm. frustrated and like everything starts driving up the wall you know mm. it's a bit depressing so i didn't write for a long time after that This, this recurred later in her, her life as well. She's very amusing about getting a postcard from Morrissey, which results in her going down and singing like one line on a Smiths album, meeting Billy Bragg, 
then she talks quite extensively about you know, the, the place of women in the arts generally and about how contraception has allowed women to actually come to the forefront because in the old days, pregnancy would often knock them straight off, off, off the track. She tells some great stories about hearing they don't know on the US radio in, in, a, in a liquor store in San Francisco and jumping up and down saying, that's my song. She, she talks about the songwriting and songwriters she admires. She's got a great story about seeing Alan Toussaint in a New York club. And he introduces the first song as, I'd like to thank the Pointer Sisters. You know, it's made this one a hit. He introduces the second song as, I'd like to thank the Pointer Sisters. They made this one a hit. And the third song says, thank God for the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> and a great story, she, you know, a great Don Covey story. It's a really nice interview. And like I said, we'll listen to the clip where she talks about becoming attuned to working live on the stage again by going on the road with the Pogues, mm. which is mm. terrific. Yeah, it's a really it's a really charming interview. She comes across so well. It's really it's really chummy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And and Tobler's wonderful. And we're running it partly because Fairy Tale in New York is one of the one of the great Christmas songs. Oh, yes. But she she's a really good egg, isn't she? She's terrific. You know, and of course her life ended in such a all horrible way, oh. tragic way. And she's greatly missed. Yes. I think she clearly people really enjoyed working with yeah. her. She she she's someone who who's clearly, you know, actually very grounded, unpretentious. Yeah. She's she she's pouring tea and feeding Tobler sandwiches throughout this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I could just picture it. Yeah, she's a yeah. delight. Yeah. Thank you for the days Those endless days, those sacred days you gave me So Mark, talk us through some of the highlights in the new yeah. library intake, as it were. Well, the first thing is just, just funny. It's a guy called Mike Berry, who most of you have forgotten. He was a Joe Meek protégé. Oh, um, yeah. his, and his backing band were The Outlaws, which included, amongst others, Richie Blackmore. And this is from February 63. He went on to have some success as an actor. So, you know, he, he had a lot him. life after. after <laughs> you remember Mike Berry? Yeah. 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 Thanks to Rocky Stars. Right. <laughs> and, uh, this, is, this is great. He, he was lucky to escape the bruises in an accident while on the Bobby V tour recently. He recalls, I was about five miles from Bedford, and as I came around a bend in, in the road, the car turned right over. Afterwards, it was in pretty bad shape. It cost £300 to repair. It's a miracle I had a little more than a lump on the head. Then... There was a time I crashed in Scotland last year. I came round a bend and straightened out too quickly. I went slap bang into one of those squat, solid Scottish walls. And there was, of course, the incident where I crashed in Cornwall. Hope it doesn't happen with the next car. This guy really should stop driving. <laughs> um, Chuck Berry reviewed live at the Lewisham Odeon in January '65 by Ian Dove. Not, I mean, it's, it's, it's Chuck, it's Chuck, it's Chuck. But this is, what's interesting is the Graham Bond organisation and the support oh, band. And there he is. There he is. There well, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Links and connections. That's that yeah. yeah. There's a great picture of um, Graham Bond in your book. Um, and yes. what's, what's interesting is, is that at this point, his band included Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. Oh, yeah. And a harmonicas featured a train blues, train time, which, of course, Cream, Cream. went on to c- continue doing. And Oh Baby was drum solo time from the very controlled Ginger Baker. Drum solos generally bore me, but gingers made sense and didn't degenerate into a sheet of noise. I mean, that's interesting because this is proto cream, essentially. You know, he, he highlights two aspects of, the, oh, of yeah. that, that show. Let me see. Donna Summer, Melody Maker 76, uncredited. And she's really talking about, she's just had, um, I Feel Love has just come out, and she talks about, we're going to ride the dark horse as far as we can take it. When we can't get any further on that dark horse, we'll just get on another one. <laughs> um, it, it's, 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 it's interesting stuff. Is that stuff. the dark horse of disco? The dark, dark horse of disco. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, interviewed by David McCulloch. Andy McCluskey comes up with some pretty horrible things. Tart, it's the Liverpool phrase for girls. I mean, anyway, I think girls who are pretty are only good for one thing. Could you not do that in a Scouse accent? I can't. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Interesting one. Jim Sullivan interviewing Sheena Easton in 1982 for the Boston Globe. And this is the My Baby Takes the Morning Train period, Sheena Easton, rather than the, the Prince. The Prince rather than the Prince <laughs> one. And he sort of challenges her on the lack of feminism in her lyrics. 
And he says, I've not encountered criticism by anyone who is actually a true thinking person. I've only encountered criticism from people who are fishing around for feminist viewpoints, you know. But she comes over as very tough in this interview. You know, this is a woman who's very clear-sighted about what, what she's doing, uh, which she proved to be you know, subsequently. Um, and I like this, was Mitchell Cohen reviewing Def Leppard's Pyromania, Cream, 1983. It almost goes saying that the Leps know what they're doing. They've sprinkled enough cashmere on their breakfast cereal to grow into strapping examples of British metalhood. You mean Cashmere's and the Led Zeppelin track? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and, and lastly, Chris probably interested, but Carl Cox, DJ. Oh, yeah. Uh, interviewed by Carl Loban, Melody Mick, and he talks about him getting into house music, having been a sort of hip-hop DJ and a sort of funk DJ. He says, all my mates were like, what's this freaky Batman music? And I said, it's not freaky at all. It's what's going on. And then he says, I've always been into disco, but that was pushed under the carpet as being only for gays. But that's where the best parties were which is pretty cool stuff to say. You well, know. Carl's brilliant. I mean, yeah. I know Carl, and he did a fantastic interview for Helen's Ibiza book. Oh, know, right. He, he talked for about an hour, and yeah. I think he's relocated to Australia now, but yeah. he's still out there, he's still at it, and he'll still play clubs that are surviving from that era. Right. You know, like Back to Basics, he'll play yeah. them, but, you know, nominal yeah. fee. A good man. Good never man. a superstar. He never went the way of the open fold sort of... No. That's right. And in fact, in this interview, he talks about exactly that, yeah. that, that he'd rather play to the right audience in the oh, right yeah. room than make a, make a whole lot of money, which is what a lot of people were doing at precisely this time. Yes. 98 was the peak of the superstar DJ sort of period. Yeah. Um, you didn't get to talk about your yeah, exactly. well, your many self reinventions oh, <laughs> in the nineties. You, you as a superstar, you, you, well, <laughs> well, superstar within perhaps Buckinghamshire or no, no, but, I, no, but, I, I and, no you 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 did you you toured with Primal Scream and and Prodigy. I mean, this is this is you know this is a, a real kind of change of of tactics. Well, not really. I mean, basically, when I was doing Zigzag and Zigzag was disintegrating thanks to the clueless Hooray Henry's battering it into the ground. I moved in with youth on Labrick Grove, yep. you know, 80, early 82. Mm -hmm. And we were massively into New York Kiss FM radio tapes, you know, with yeah, yeah. uh, Shep Pettibone, who went yep. on to work with Madonna, you know, dismembering... It was predicting what was going to happen a few years later. Yep. And we were so into disco, but the new incarnation, the boogie, it was called... Yeah. Electronic, and I'd always loved soul music, yeah. and I always already loved reggae, and this just seemed like a very exciting thing. You know, electro was being born in New York by sure. our friend Jay Burnett. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and I just went so overboard for the new hip hop coming up. You know, Run DMC came over, yeah. and we've got your audio interview with with them on, oh, yeah. on Rock's back pages. Actually, yeah. yeah, yes, I mean that was. That struck up a relationship with Rick Rubin, and I started going to New York in 83, yeah. fell in love with the place and moved there yeah. in 86, mm. and I was there for four years, and <laughs> missed out on this massive revolution that happened in, like, 87, 88. Yes. But I came back, and all my friends like Youth and Alex were, like, DJs, making records, producers, people who couldn't play an instrument yeah, yeah. making records, and I quickly got in there with that one. Yes. I mean, I've been trying to make hip-hop records in New York. Yeah. Going to projects on Rockaway, Beach. far Rockaway and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so I had that sort of thing, I want to make records. And then my friend Wonder came from Cleveland and we started Secret Knowledge yeah. for Andy Andrew Weatherall's yeah. Sabres of Paradise mm. label. And that, our second single, Sugar Daddy, became a massive record and i started getting dj spots with the orb and yeah. primal scream and i spent a couple of years as primal screams tour dj yeah, and lived uh, <laughs> <laughs> lived, <laughs> lived to tell the tale <laughs> and a prodigy yeah yeah you know, were you on deconstruction records yes and we signed to decon that, that was yeah. a bit of a mistake well uh, my old 
band, soul band I had was that the very first deconstruction release was our single. We were, oh, we were matched right. by Keith Blackhurst and Peter Hatfield. So yes, yeah, so they're, they're, they're the two that I used to deal with. And oh, I don't know what went wrong with that, but I, mean, I think the <laughs> fact that we recorded it at Youth Studio mm. out of loyalty to an old mate. Yes. In Brixton, and I think there was simply too many refreshments around. Of, um, right. Connected with the Goa trance he was very into, and I decided I wanted to make a Barry White style concept album. Because <laughs> 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 Wonder Love, Donna Summer, and Primal Scream came over and played on some. Tra- and there was anything but a retread of our right. big record. Yeah. And really, I should have just gone for the jugular with that kind of thing. Yeah. And it wouldn't have got us dropped in the, before we could make the next album. Mm, yeah. It all went pear-shaped. We really need to wrap up, don't we? <laughs> Have you got anything else for us? Uh, no, no, that no, 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 that's, that's it. Have you got anything sparkling? No, because I think we are out of time. Um, of course, Chris, we could, <laughs> we could talk till the cows come home about many other aspects of your career. You know, thanks again so much for coming in. I, I want to give another plug to part one of Just a Shot Away, 1969 Revisited, which is a tremendous read about all the extraordinary musical mm. things that happened in that year. When can we expect part two at the end of this year oh no i mean basically i'm writing a book about the orb at the moment oh okay so you've had to you've had to take a break from 1969 yeah i mean it's written it is written okay but the thing is with things happen so so often and so you know there's so much information still coming in i might rewrite certain sections of part two but hopefully it'll be out in the spring Uh, and if i can give a plug I've, i've read a lot of your books chris but one in particular, your suicide, your book about suicide, is, oh. I think, just fantastic. Oh, thank you. You know, The uh, band rather than the, the ba- act. The band rather than the actual, <laughs> yes. <laughs> or the yeah. act rather yeah, than well, the I act. Yeah, well, I love that too. I mean, we're huge suicide yeah, fans. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, um, and, that, and it was partly a, a sort of love letter to New York City as well, wasn't it? Was, it was, I yeah. mean... Yeah. I have to credit Helen, my, my partner. Yeah, my, uh, late, late partner. partner yeah. with that one, because... She got me the deal with Omnibus, and I was able to get in touch with Alan and Marty yeah. and did the book with them. It's mm. fantastic. It's a, it's, um, a, it's, a, it's a just in the nick of time. Yeah, yes, indeed. Did you find Alan Vega as delightful as as I did in my encounters with him? Well, the... I mean, I'd still I'd first met him on tour with the Clash. Mm. You know, when he was getting That's regularly right, bottled off. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he mellowed. But I used to when I lived in New York, he used to give. He used to go to this bar around the corner from where I lived called WGAF, mm-hmm. and you can work out what that stands for. <laughs> um, and so I kept in touch, and then I DJed for suicide at the ICA, and and Alan, he mellowed, and then, it, of course, he, he was not very well. Yeah. And I last spoke to him not very long before, you know, it was for the yeah. book. Yeah. But he was still, he was trying to, the shopping was being delivered at the same time as the interview, and he was like, hey! It was the Alan Baker voice <laughs> barking at the shopping delivery guy. You know, uh, he was lovely. I mean, he was incredible. He was such a yeah. lovely. But so is Marty, and I still yeah. speak to Marty now. Yeah, because Marty's still the questing. Yeah. Yes, of course. Well, jazz musician, yeah. really, mm-hmm. and he gets so bored when he has to do interviews about suicide. Yeah, first yeah, of, course. yeah. <laughs> of course. But yeah. it's great. It's a great book. So I'm saying, you know, Thank all you out there, dream baby, dream, is, is buy buy that book too. Um, yeah, great. Well, well, thanks so much. It's been just such on. a joy speaking <laughs> with you, Chris, and oh, good luck with all yeah. your future endeavours, writing, music, whatever you you're you're in, in, involved with is always interesting. We're going to go out with another clip from. Kirsty McColl talking about singing on stage with the Pogues. We'll see you in the next era of British politics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, when you God knows what world we'll be in by the time you guys out there are listening <laughs> to this. Uh, but we will be back next week for our final podcast yeah. of the year. See you, hear you, talk then. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Are you actually going to try and go do some live work with this record? Yeah, I mean, I did. The, the only I didn't do anything live at all until the Pogues. After that, because I just thought I'll never do it again. I'll never <laughs> ever subject myself to that kind of abject terror. But the Pogues invited me up on stage when they were, you know, when Fairy Tale was a big hit already. It was just before Christmas and um, '87, and um, they were playing in Glasgow in Barrowlands, where I'd got engaged to Steve, and I had a lot, many a happy hour. And um, it's a great ballroom, you know, in Glasgow. Mm. It's a brilliant place. And um, 
I just thought, well, it'd be awful if I didn't get up and do it, you know, because everybody loves that song, and they're, mm. they're such a good audience. Like Pogues fans are brilliant, you know, they're just yes. really great, and um, particularly in Scotland, I like the vibe up there. And I thought, well, I must have a go, you know. And I was really frightened. I wasn't very good the first sort of couple of times, but I got better. And then they invited me on the rest of the British tour, and I thought, oh yeah, you know. And after a while, I got sort of into it, and then I sort of gate crashed the German tour. <laughs> <laughs> just arrived here, I am, <laughs> and um, did quite a lot of gigs with them, and ended up kind of feeling really that, you know, I should, this is what I should be doing. That was Kirsty McCall in conversation with John Tobler in 1989, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Chris Needs, whose new book, Just a Shot Away, is published by New Haven and out now. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. You were pretty queen of New York City When, when the band finished playing, they held up for more Sinatra was swinging, all the drums they were singing We kissed on the corner, then danced through the night The boys of the NYPD choir were singing Go away, play And the bells were ringing out for Christmas Day